0: Today we are beginning a new book. We're beginning a new book that is literally called Beginnings, uh, the book of Genesis. Grab your Bible and make your way over there. Uh, It's called that, right, Uh, Beginnings, because the custom in ancient times was to name books after the very first word of whatever book it is. And and so the Jews used the first word of the Hebrew that that shows up in the Hebrew writing here. Uh, And so Bereshit, right, meaning beginning. That's what is going on there. So then other than the fact that it's really hard to pronounce and not real pretty, why do we not call this book Sheets," right? I don't know why I made it Italian. It's not Italian. Uh, you know, this is, the reason for this is that because around 250 B.C., the Old Testament uh, was translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, and then that Greek was translated into Latin, called the Vulgate. Uh, and in that whole process, right, as it's going back and forth in that area, it, it gets transliterated. Uh, that is, where they take a foreign word and just try to match it with whatever the English letters would be in this case, right, to replicate the sound of the old Greek word, and that word is Genesis. So that's, that's why it's called Genesis. There you have it, meaning beginnings. Now, uh, thankfully, this is not how New Testament books were named. You might notice that, right, because if it were, the Gospel of John would very confusingly also be called Genesis, um, it starts with the very same phrase right there. So, anyway, the author of, of, uh, of Genesis, do you know it? You can shout it out. It's one of your few chances. You get to get, like, you know, shouty. Anyone? Anyway, Moses? Yes, whoever said Moses, you're right. And the rest of you, you're probably right and just were afraid to shout it out. Uh, he is the author of Genesis. He's also the, the author of the Pentateuch, the Torah. Those words just mean the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and he wrote most of it. And I say most of it because... Uh, it would have been very difficult for Moses to have written about his own death uh, in the very last chapter of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 34. Uh, so certainly, certainly someone came in and made some edits there at the end to explain that part. We don't know who that is, though. Now, uh, Moses was not an eyewitness to these events in Genesis. That shouldn't surprise you based on what we're going to read here in a minute. Uh, but God revealed these things to Moses, and, and based on an internal dating within the Scripture, right, it's most likely... Uh, around 1400 B.C., maybe 1450 B.C., and I know you throw these languages or dates out at you, and you're like, I don't know what that means. So let me put it in some perspective for you. It was written uh, while Israel is wandering in the wilderness. It's written before they go into the promised land at this time when they need to reflect on who is God, what has he done for us, all that is what's going on. So that's that's the time period. Um, So J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings... Uh, he had this idea of Middle Earth, all that world, right, in his mind, and, and there was a moment <clears throat> when he brought it to life by writing it on the page, and it kind of comes to life that way. If, if you're not that old, right, or really not that sci-fi, right, there was a moment when J.K. Rowling uh, brought the world of Harry Potter to, to life in some regard, but, but those, those worlds, those, those characters, they're, they're fiction, right? They're completely made up. They don't exist in the real world anyway, right? I mean... Yeah, you can go to New Zealand, and if you do, you should absolutely visit Hobbiton in New Zealand, but when you do so, you're not going to find any hobbits there at all, right? You can can drink butterbeer in Universal Studios, and it is so delicious, I highly recommend it, but you're not going to find any magic, you're not going to find any house elves, because none of that is real, and I know that's disappointing to a few of you, but it's not real. God is the only author, the only author who has truly brought to life all that he has been able to conjure up. And for our good and for His glory, God has given a a, a, a peek into the truer religion or origins of everything. Of everything, right, right down to the smallest subatomic particle in the universe, or what you know, a simple Google thing has told me is technically massless and called an electron neutrino. Is that a real thing, Tim? George, electron neutrino. You know what that is? Depends. Okay. Uh, So now, let's just get to the passage here. We're going to read it, uh, and and listen up, right? Listen up, because the whole whole history of the universe begins right here. Verse 1 and 2 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin today in Genesis, as we begin this journey, this preaching series, I ask that you would enlighten our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that you would build up our faith, that that we would not shrug off these passages because they are so well-known in our lives, but, but rather that we would learn to swim deeper into them, that we would, with childlike faith and with curious wonder, recapture the joy of all that you reveal to us in these opening chapters. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, the first thing I want to show you in in Genesis is actually the structure of Genesis, okay? There is a structure. Uh, The reason I want to do this is that most of us, our familiarity with Genesis is heavily influenced by by children's Bibles, and, and that is this chopped up version, really helpful, I'm not knocking it really, these chopped up ideas where they're just kind of squished together and, and you don't see any structure in that at all and, and also because if you've even done a Bible study as an adult on this, the, the structure of this is incredibly easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for and so uh, let's look at that and there's three ways that Genesis is actually structured. Um, the first one and the most obvious one is, is based on uh, 10 particular generations that are highlighted in Genesis. Now, of course, there's more than 10 generations in the book of Genesis, but but structurally there are 10 that are distinguished uh, in the text with the word, right, generations. I'm going to show you. You've got your Bibles open in front of you still, right? So let me show you what I mean. Uh, Flip a page over to Genesis 2, 4, chapter 2, verse 4, and you see that it says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth, right, of heaven and earth. Uh, Everything up to this point is, is considered prolonged, uh, and this marks the first section, the first generation, and that one is creation itself. Now, now if you're still doing that, turn over to Genesis 5.1, right? We're gonna see it again. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay? And you don't have to keep going, but 6-9, right? You get to the generations of Noah. You get over to Genesis 10:1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, right? Or as it would be known in Scotland, the, the Mick Noah's, because Mick means sons of. Uh, Genesis 11.10, the generations of Shem. Genesis 11.27, the generations of uh, Terah. Probably not pronounced right. Uh, It's mostly about his son. Um, I don't know if you know this, right? You know Father Abraham? He had many sons. Did you know what Father Abraham's dad's name is, though? That's it. T-E-R-E-A, Terah. I should have looked that up. Anyway, uh, those are the six generations that we're going to cover in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. The last four generations, just in case you're wondering, are Ishmael, uh, Isaac, Esau, and, and Jacob. And if you like to write these things, if you're thinking, I wish I could mark these in my Bible, but you went way too fast and didn't finish anything, uh, you can find them on the calendar page on our, our website, and I'll put them in the email on Tuesday too, so you can get them that way. Now, uh, the second structure of Genesis is based around these three geographical locations, right? Part of the story happens one place, then they move, it happens another place, and then another place. Uh, and it works out like this. Chapters 1 to 11 are in an area called Mesopotamia. P- Potamia. Uh, some call it the Fertile Crescent. Chapters 12 through 36 take place in Palestine, uh, Canaan, Canaan uh, what we often call the promised land or, or Israel. And then chapters 37 through 50 uh, occur in, in Egypt. So that's the three different geographies of Genesis. And then the third one, and this one's the most simple one, right? We, we see in Genesis this, this division between all of humanity right it's all it's about all of humanity and then it's about one chosen family and those are the two divisions there one through eleven is about all of humanity uh and and then the chosen family is in chapters 12 through 50 so uh you've likely heard explained anyone trying to say this is what scripture is about and tell me if you haven't or you're going to hear it right now if not right it's it's these four themes creation fall redemption restoration it's a way of kind of understanding what scripture is about now, in your Bible, there are 1,189 chapters. Those were added by people later on. They're not, they're not divinely inspired in that sense, but that's, that's how we break down the, the text of Scripture. Uh, keeping those four ideas in mind, only two of those 1,189 chapters are explicitly about creation, the first two. The fall is explained in Genesis chapter 3. really want to like stretch it you could make a pretty good argument that it goes all the way to chapter 11 because you see the fall really spreading and the effects of it quite a a bit further Uh, you get to see how the flood really doesn't fix the fall Um, and so what's that we're at you know uh, nine total chapters on the fall Uh, the last two chapters of revelation are about the explicitly again right about restoration lord putting everything right and that means that most of the scripture, or, or to put this in chapters, 1,176 chapters are mostly about the third concept, about redemption. They're about how God goes about redeeming his people. It's also why we have this focus about this chosen family. Because through this chosen family is the way that God is, is going to bring about this restoration, right? God will, is, is going to bring a savior, and that God is going to bless the nations through this chosen family. Now, it's worth noting that this family line isn't chosen because they're particularly good or, you know, that they're, you know, you know good people, right? Because they're not. If you've ever taken time to, to read about these people, they're not, right? Most of the time, we should not follow their example, right? Abraham lies and claims his wife is actually his sister because he's afraid of some people. When, when God promises a child to, to Sarah in old age, right, she laughs at God. Not trusting him in that way. Lot's wife disobeys one simple thing, right? Don't look back. And then she's turned into a pillar of salt. Jacob is this, this nasty manipulator. Uh, his mother, Rachel, helps him actually dupe his father. Trick him, right? Uh, Laban is just a dirty cheat. Anyone who does the things he does, is just rotten. Uh, Joseph's jealous brothers, right? We've all had problems with our siblings, but, but his brothers actually sell him into slavery and watch him just go off to a foreign country, gone. Right? More than one of them become murderers. Uh, Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law. And there is so much more that I do. It's just nasty. And listen, everything I just told you, that's all the good side of the family, right? So, so Genesis is, is not a book uh, of emulatable heroes and heroine, heroines, right? It's a, it's a book of sinners who need a savior. It's a history of, of God making a promise to redeem his chosen people and, and all the ways that God from that point forward providentially keeps that promise, keeps that covenant. N- n- now then, let's, let's have a look at the open line here, shall we, right? The, the seven words, it's ten in English, but seven in Hebrew that make up the first line of Genesis, and honestly, it's, Hebrew's not the prettiest thing, right? Elohim et And it's even worse if you can do it right. Um, it's not beautiful, but, but what it reveals is incredibly beautiful. These words are of utmost importance to anyone who wants to understand the world that you actually live in, who wants to understand the, the relationship that God has with you. Anyone who finds themselves gazing up at the heavens and the dark of night with that, that, that overwhelming sense of smallness, of tininess, and, and that, that, that wonder and existential curiosity... I mean, hear him again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the theologian John Gershner, he shared way back in the 1930s, that's when he was actually in high school, um, and he said his high school physics teacher said, that, said, the greatest question which has ever been asked is why there is something rather than nothing. Why is there something rather than nothing? If you really get down to the basic idea of that, there's only two possible answers to that, right? I know, there's people that explain it 800 different ways, but only two real answers, right? Either, either the universe was created by God with intentional design and purpose, or the universe somehow randomly created itself with no design and no purpose. Scripture is uh, unapologetically tells us in these opening words the universe did not create itself. Creation is the spectacular work of the Lord God Almighty. Now keep in mind when we say that, right, Genesis wasn't written in response to ideas that were conjured up uh, upon the HMS Beagle in the 1930s. It's not written as a science book to... Uh, in response to Darwin's theory. That's not what it was designed to do. It, it's written in the context uh, of the Israelites who have been wandering in the wilderness, right? And, and they're getting ready to go into this promised land, and they're just looking up, and they're seeing the stars and all this stuff. Um, and, and they've just come out of Egypt where they have been living under pagan concepts of false gods and goddesses and, and all this crazy stuff. That's the context. And, and so at the most basic level, <clears throat> this opening phrase sets out to describe every scientific detail of creation, or not to, set, to, not to give us every scientific detail of creation, but to establish at the most basic level who is it that created everything. That's what it's designed to answer. And the answer is simple. God, the God is the, the answer to that. Later in, in Psalm 8.3, King David prays saying, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And David's psalm assumes that God cares for us. In these opening lines of uh, of Genesis, they absolutely affirm that because here is God. No reason he has to tell us anything could leave us an absolute mystery forever if he wanted to. But he doesn't leave us in the existential crisis that so many people in our time are grounding in. But but instead, God astonishingly chooses to reveal himself in the works of his hands. You know, it's it's nice to know these things. Um, I'll throw Jeremy under the bus. I think it's time. I do it every week, actually. Um, We have this stained glass window that someone left in my office a couple years ago, and it's it's beautiful. It's our logo. Uh, And trying to figure out who it was for a year and a half, something like that. Uh, He was sitting in my office one day, and someone came in and was asking about the stained glass window, and I was like, I don't know, it's a great mystery, who knows, whoever it is hadn't told us. Uh, And it really was, and I had all these theories about who it might have been, and and it's nice enough, we thought, oh, they must have bought it somewhere, or paid for it to be made. And, And anyway, one day, he's finally like, do you really want to know? I was like, yeah, I've been asking for a year and a half, I really want to know. And he's finally like, my dad and I, I made that. Uh, so that, that's where it comes from, and it's this idea, he could have sat there quietly forever, right? And, 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 and I know they're not the same, right? glass window, the whole universe, a little different, I mean, but, but this idea of just being let in, the, the kindness of, of knowing this kind of thing, right? Uh, and, and often at this point, right, of, of God creating the world, we, we come to this and I, I think we always want to ask questions that it's not, not easy to get answers of, right? Like, who made God? That's the question that people always want to ask me when we're talking about creation. Well, who made God? And, and as much as it's going to hurt your brain to try and make sense out of this, nobody. God has always existed. And if you really think about that, it will like physically hurt your head, or at least it does mine, right? Now, now to put this into mathematical terms, uh, you and I, our, our souls are, are like rays, right? There's a, a solid point where we began, and then it goes on for the rest of eternity. You, you will. There's never a day that you're not going to exist from this day forward. Now, God, on the other hand, in, in mathematical terms, is a, is a line, and that's the one that has the arrow going both directions, right? Because it, it goes infinitely in, in both directions. Uh, you, you hear what I'm saying? There was a moment when, when not a single speck of a physical matter existed in the universe, but there was never a moment when God himself did not exist. Never. And if you're like, I just, I can't understand that. Yeah, because you're not God, right? You don't have a brain that can understand that. And and that's okay, right? You can't comprehend that, but it doesn't mean that it's not true, right? I, I can't make any sense out of how a a woman singing with six different instruments is recorded and, and then recreated by dragging a needle over a tiny little vinyl record, right? My mind is blown by that. Someone might understand that, but I can't, but it doesn't make it any less true because I can't understand it. There is something humbling then about what is, what is called the, the creature-creator distinction, right? That, that I am created and that, that God is not, that, that he has made me, right? I, I am what has been made. I can't expect to understand everything that my creator can understand. Now, now, the Hebrew verb that we read here is created in verse 1. You've heard me say it a few times. Is bara. B-A-R-A in English. right? I, I mention this because I, at this point, want you all to think that I know Hebrew much better than I actually do. Just kidding. That's not why. Uh, there's a real reason for this. Uh, it's because this term is used only of God creating. right? Not of man at any point. Only of God creating when we see it in the scripture. And, and we see it and think, yeah, but but we do create things, we are creative people, right? So someone created a butter sculpture this summer of basketball phenom, Caitlin Clark, right? Uh, TikTok is full of people who tell me they are called content creators, right? Recording themselves eating cheeseburgers or something, right? Uh, so, you know, and not to be outdone, right? Uh, Thomas Edison created the light bulb, which is good too. And so what's the difference really though, right? What's the difference about how God creates from everything we create? And it's really kind of simple, right? Well. Everything that man has ever created began with physical matter that already existed, right? There's already something. Everything from rocket fuel to chocolate chip cookies is made of already existing physical matter. I know you musicians are like, what about a tune, right? But you use an instrument, even if your mouth's the instrument, right? Even if your head's the instrument, it, it was made from something. But God, God created from nothing, actually nothing, not matter, nothing. The, the theological term for this is ex nihilo, that's Latin for out of nothing. And, and, and what is stated generally in our passage is made more explicit in Hebrews eleven three right, where by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made not out of things that are, are visible. Was, let me try that again. Uh, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Are visible. I can't read that. You get it. All right, so God creates from true nothingness. So what's he make out of this nothingness, right? The the rest of the verse answers that. The the heavens and the earth, it's a little vague, um, which is really just a way of saying God created all the things visible and invisible in the world. You're like, well, what invisible things? Well, things like gravity, right? That's kind of amazing. Gravity makes everything in the universe kind of function, right? And he created that. Visible, well, he made the earth. He, He made the Flint Hills and the Kansa Prairie, he made out Everest, and he made the the beaches of Cancun. Right, as we're going to see next week, right, he created all the creatures upon the earth, the fireflies that we chase after at night, uh, the giant squids in the depths of the ocean, God made this. You see, so far scientists have classified over 1.7 million specific species, and all of them exist because of God. And God also made the heavens, it says here, we don't spend a lot of time in the heavens. We, we look at them from time to time, right? That's, that's everything that's not on the earth. Every fascinating thing that the web telescope is currently photographing, and, and we're seeing published here and there. The, the, earth, is, the, the earth is part of our, our local solar system. If you don't know this, uh, all the solar systems have a name, and ours has the worst name ever. It's like Google named it, because it's just called solar system. That's the name of ours. The rest of them are far more interesting, right? Anyway, our solar system consists of the sun and eight planets and one sadly rejected thing called Pluto. That's what makes up our solar system. That's messed up. Now, our solar system is one of 5,000 other solar systems in the galaxy that is called the Milky Way. The galaxy was named first, then the candy bar. I looked it up to make sure. Uh, the Milky Way is, is 600 trillion with a T miles wide. 600 trillion, right? Manhattan is about 600 miles wide. If you're not good at math, I'll just tell you that it's quite a bit less. Um, Now, to put this in some sort of perspective that we understand, crossing just our galaxy is equivalent to going around the earth 25 million times. That's just to get from one end to the other end. The Milky Way is mind-bogglingly huge, but it is only one of 200 billion other galaxies. Let me put the vastness uh, of the known created heavens and perspective for you, if the entire known universe was the size of the earth that you are sitting on right now, right? That's everything that we know that's been created out in space, the, the distance, all that. Then the earth itself would be one little particle. That's, to put it in perspective, right? That's how much is out there. And every year we are discovering more and more. At this point, the universe appears to have no end, no boundaries. Does that, does that mess with you a little bit? I don't even like to think about that. It is creepy, right? Uh, right, Just to think how small we are in the universe. And, and the God that we worship created every speck of dust that makes up all that. Just with this word, right? So that's the, the heavens and the earth. Now, now let's look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Anyone who's ever studied biblical languages knows these words in Hebrew, right? Tohu, vabohu, I don't know why, they, they drill this in your head. It's, if you would ask me to just say anything in Hebrew, that would be the thing that came to my mind. I don't know, 15, 20 years later, whatever it's been, right? It means without form and void, right? You see there in, in there, right? Now, now, these words actually appear in Isaiah 34, 11, not exactly together, but in the same verse. Um, and there, they're translated as confusion and, and emptiness, uh, which leaves a lot to our imagination. What, what exactly are we, we picturing here? Uh, what does uh, creation look like at this point, right? Is it, is it just raw physical matter that we're talking about? Is it some sort of gaseous chaos? Is it primordial you know, ooze of some sort? Is, is the universe like a big lump of clay that the, the potter just throws down on the wheel before he, he spins it into a beautiful vase, Right? Now, you know, these Hebrew words, it's hard to know, right? These Hebrew words show up together just one other time in the Old Testament, and they actually are together in the same way. Jeremiah 4, 23. And at this time, God is punishing the tribe of Judah for her sins and they describe how the land's going to look. Like, here's what's going to happen because of your sins. And this is God speaking. He says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. There it is, right? And to the heavens, and they had no light. And it goes on to say there, there were no people and there were no buildings and there were no plants and there were no animals. It's kind of this idea of reversing everything that we're going to see happen here in Genesis 1, right? Uh, without a doubt in Jeremiah, there's some uh, hyperbole going on based on the way it turns out. But, but what I want us to learn here is, is that it's a, a picture of land, and this is it, right? That is uninhabited and uninhabitable, okay? Uninhabited and uninhabitable and... and and I don't know what that really looks like, right? I mean, if, if I'm honest, I think most of St. Louis looks uninhabitable, but I don't think that's what the creation probably looks like, right, at, at this point. Now, it's, it's okay that we don't confidently know what it looked like. And I, I think we get, I'm getting dirty look because you're from St. Louis. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know what this looks like, and, and that's okay. I think sometimes we think from these little words, we should be able to picture it beautifully every little detail of it. And that's just not the case. It wasn't what it's was designed to do, right? We, we, we do know this, though, that, that at this point, creation was not ready yet. And, and the beautiful thing of this, this verse here, right at the beginning, right, is that it sets the stage for how God will form the universe, how, how God will fill the earth with plants and creatures of all sorts over the next six days to come. Now, in, in verse 2, we also read this, and, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There is Darkness here because God has not yet said those words. Let there be light. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing there, and he compares the darkness of creation, right, from this early Genesis right here, uh, to the darkness in in human hearts, right, the depravity that we are naturally with. In in both cases, the, the darkness remains until God says, let there be light, thus driving out the darkness and replacing it with light. In the case of the creation, right, the light is literally the light of the sun and the stars, and in the case of salvation it's the light of Christ that shines in our hearts and it's bringing, bringing life. Right? So this begins, this, this, the way God creates the world later actually serves as this, this illustration that he's going to use for the way Christ comes into our lives. Now, verse 2 ends with the words, and the Spirit of God was ho- hovering over the face of the waters. And, and again, it's, it's hard to know what to picture here. It's, is the water like an atmosphere around the earth, right? That's one theory, maybe. Um, but picturing the details of this is really not the point of this. Uh, the point is more about who is hovering over the face of the waters. I mean, look at the text in front of you. You, you notice that phrase, the Spirit of God. You got a capital S, you got a capital G, right? It's, it's capitalized. It means the Spirit is God. And, and these words really create a sense of expectation, Sometimes when we're reading on our own in Genesis, we just cruise right through that, right? But if you can just slow down a little in these first two verses, you, you get that sense of expectation, that, that eye-widening, lip-biting, smile-inducing moment of excitement that just before the concert begins, just before the curtain comes up and the show starts moments. In, in other words, God is about to do something wonderful, something amazing, something I think we all wish we could sit back and watch actually occur. And that's, that's where our passage today ends. That, that's the end of it, right? But, but I want to point out one more little thing here. I want to point out a, a foreshadowing. I want to point out a, an Easter egg, if you will. You, you, you see, the mystery of the Holy Trinity is in, embedded in the first three verses, or the first three words of the Bible. Bereshit, Bera Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created it. It's an Easter egg because the original readers would not have picked up on this, okay? Anyone reading early on, the, the Jews reading throughout the Old Testament would read this, uh, they would have seen this, they would have explained what I'm about to tell you, it's just, that's a way of showing God's majesty, um, and that's how they would have understood it, but as Christians, reading it through the lens of, of Jesus, reading it through the lens of the New Testament, and everything that we know, the, the further revelation of God that we have, right, we, we get a glimpse of the Trinity right here, um, okay? Now, it's true, the Old Testament is blatantly monotheistic throughout, right, you think of the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6-4, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one right and and we see it everywhere else as well i won't further explain that but you know yet here is 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 the trinity easter egg listen to this right if you look at verse one that name god there in hebrew it is unexpectedly plural god's name is plural and while the verb created here is what you would expect it is singular You, you get that god plural created singular and again the jews just understand it as as explaining the majesty of god's name but you know, you know, God is, is one. He is also three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That, that mystery is going to be revealed in so much more detail later, right? But, but I love how, how God put that truth out there, right? Right in the very first three words of his revelation to his people. There it is. So that's, that's that. Now that... You know, in the, in the weeks, the months ahead, uh, I think I've mentioned already, but in case you missed it, we're trying to, we're planning to cover the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, and then the thought is we'll take a break, we'll go to the New Testament, do something there, and then we'll come back and finish Genesis. Uh, and I've told this to a few pastors I know that have preached this, and they've all told me, yeah, that was my plan too. And then we couldn't stop. We just had to keep going. So I don't know what's really going to happen. I'll, I'll just, who knows. Right? That's the plan. E- either way, though, in the weeks ahead, we are, we're, we're going to see the grace of God on display over and over in the New Testament. We're going to see the way this points us to Jesus. Right? Um, but, but again, I, I want you thinking about the grace as we see God, even then. It's not something that just shows up later. As, as we unpack the fall of Adam and Eve, of, of Cain murdering Abel, right, and then the massive destruction, the flood, and, and all these, I want you looking for how God shows grace, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, in all three of these events, because they're real simple, right, we, we see this pattern, uh, first there is sin, and second, that God responds by telling them, well, here's the consequences of those sins, the penalty, if you will, uh, third, God gives grace that eases the consequences, right, that it's not as bad, uh, and finally, God punishes the sin. And in each story, the sin increases. In each story, God's punishment becomes more severe. But, but what's never lacking in all of these instances is the grace of God. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. But, but in grace, God withholds the physical death penalty for them. He also you know, gives them first glimpse of the, of the gospel to come. Cain is, is banished from his, his family's presence, but God shows him grace by, by giving him a mark that, that protects his life from others. And the flood destroys all of earth, right? But God shows grace by, by preserving a remnant of, of his people and animals even through, through the ark of Noah. So there's that. Now, now Genesis, just to finish this out, Genesis is about the universe. Genesis is about where you came from, why you exist. Genesis is about sin, why it exists, what it has caused, right? But but more than all of that, Genesis is about God. Who is God? What has he done? It's about the wonder of his creation. Genesis is about God's steadfast love for his chosen people, right? Despite our continued sin and unfaithfulness of the Lord. Genesis gives us hope as it points to Jesus, the Savior of the world. You see, these, 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 the words of Genesis were where first given to the children. I mentioned this already, but let me tell you again, that the children of the Exodus, right? And I mean adults there too, right? The children of the Exodus though. Okay, can you imagine them looking up into the mesmerizing night skies out there in the wilderness? They look up and they just see the, the symphony of stars making up what, what's yet to be named the Milky Way the way they're tracing shooting scars and comets across the, the sky. In a, in a sense, they, they would have been asking the question that, that God puts into words in, in Isaiah forty twenty six when he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. It's a question the Lord asked, and he asked it because it draws us back to him. Right? In, in Genesis, God gives the answer. And so now you and I, we we can sing the the lyrics found at the end of the scriptures, right? In the the last book, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That is the God that we worship. We're going to learn more in the weeks ahead. Let us pray. Lord Lord God Almighty, in the beginning, you formed the heavens and you formed the earth and you brought light out of darkness. Your spirit hovered over the face of the waters. Thank you for creating this glorious world that we live in. Thank you for coming to dwell among us and and redeeming us from, from our sin. Father, as we make our way through Genesis, please give us inquisitive minds that long to know your word. Give us tender hearts that long to to know and to love you more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.